Okay, well, you want to turn to your Bibles to Ephesians uh, chapter 4 again. We are going to, we're going to be looking at a different section today. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 24 is the next section on practical theology and uh, what we can call personal piety. And I think you'll find that to be true as we look at this this text. Oh, before I forget, I wanted to do this last time. I hope you guys don't take offense to this, right? You Show and tell. You guys okay with this? More books. Well, no, only because there's some important books here that I wanted to point out. Wow, I didn't even realize I've got two Mark Jones books. Um, you know, the theology of our church is uh, covenantal. Um, and I was talking with Pastor Lynn here the other day and, and several other people, and I said, you know, if you went up to the average person in our church and you asked them, you know, what is covenant theology and can you explain it to me? <laughs> so, so, right, Gail's like, no, I couldn't do that. And so I'm wondering, you know, probably after uh, practical theology is over, I'd love to do something strictly on covenant theology just so that we can get into the various systems of thought that are hermeneutic, you know, they're hermeneutical in nature. This really affects the way you interpret all of Scripture, um, especially as you're thinking about the traditions of interpretation. Um, and, and mainly today, I would say probably today we have probably three big camps of interpretation. You have your dispensational sort of camp, then you have your uh, what's known as uh, covenant theology camp, and then you have another camp known as new covenant theology I think I've talked about that before, but just different people who are in those camps. Obviously, MacArthur and people from Dallas Seminary and, and, and maybe Bob Jones and some of the other fundamentalist kind of schools, they would be the heavy dispensational. Talbot also would be another one. would be more of a dispensational school of thought. And then covenant theology would be more along the lines of reform theology. Sometimes reform theology is kind of synonymous with covenant theology. And then you have kind of a uh, an offshoot of reform theology known as new covenant theology. And this is where you would plug in people like John Piper, uh, D.A. Carson, uh, people like that, Tom Wells and others, uh, Fred Zaspel, uh, a lot of uh, Gospel Coalition type folks would fit into that category, um, Justin Taylor, people like that, right? So I'm probably more in the middle traditional covenant theology, okay? So I have a resource for you. If you want to study up on some covenant theology, this is a book that you don't want to be without. This is O. Palmer Robertson. It's called The Christ of the Covenants. And what I love about this book is that not only is it is it teaching you just some basic components of covenant theology, but it's from a Christocentric perspective. And that's what I love about books like O. Palmer Robertson is that it's not just about learning a system of how to interpret the Bible, but in my opinion, folks, uh, the Bible is Christocentric. And I agree with J.I. Packer, who says that somewhere, somewhere he said, as Paul says somewhere, uh, that the Bible is in, intentionally Christocentric. So we believe in a Trinitarian God. However, the Trinitarian God revealed a book that happens to be Christocentric, okay, because this is the way that all his plan of redemption is going to be realized is through Christ. So Christ of the Covenants, this is an old one. Uh, this is kind of an oldie but goodie. Uh, this is a classic, 1980. Whew. Wow. Some of you weren't alive back then, right? <laughs> you weren't alive back then? <laughs> yes, ma'am. 
Oh, Palmer Robertson. Yeah, and he's got a few other ones. He's got one called uh, The Christ of the Prophets, and that's really good. It's just kind of getting into the theology of the prophets and how Christ is sort of central to that. And he just put out a book on the Psalms that you, if you love the Psalms, you don't want to be without O. Palmer Robertson's book on the Psalms. His book on the Psalms, they've been waiting for this book for years to come out. It's finally out, and I've interacted with it quite a bit, and it lives up to its its uh, expectation. It's a phenomenal book on the structure of the Psalms. Question? You were probably going to mention it, but the Israel of God, you wrote that book, which is incredible. Yeah, O. Palmer Robertson wrote another... A covenantal type book called the Israel of God, and that's even an, I think an older book than this one. Um, so uh, that's that's a really good book on that. Also, um, this is a great book by Mark Jones. Mark Jones uh, recently just preached at the Shepherds Conference. Uh, this is called Knowing Christ, and it's just like a simple book on Christology. I I'm recommending it to you because it's so um, it's so practical. It's so uh, I mean it's so simple. Talks about Christ's faith, Christ's emotions, Christ's growth, Christ's reading. I mean, everything is Christ. And uh, Mark Jones is somebody I'm just increasingly impressed with. He's really young, too, which is really amazing. He's such a young guy. He's so incredibly sound. And um, he's very, he's got, the Lord has just given him tremendous wisdom. So if you want a book on Christology, I would tell you to go here. Knowing Christ, great book on like communion with God and things like that. Yes, sir. Yes, he is. He's Presbyterian, so we have to make that qualification. We'll get to that in our covenant theology (laughs) Sunday school, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what is that titled? No, uh, I think it's called. Um, yeah, Google. Yeah, somebody Google it. Just put type in Psalms, Old Palmer Robertson. I forgot the name of it. Good question. Um, I usually know my titles, right? So this is, and, and that's a book I've been reading. Somebody looked that up. Now it's bothering me. Flow the, the flow of the Psalms. That's right. Because he's he's talking about the structure. How are the Psalms structured? You know what I'm saying? And the way he structures the Psalms, you will be amazed at how God did this. Because I read the Psalms and kind of you, if you're not careful, you'll read the Psalms thinking they have no sort of logical connection to one another. And what he shows you is no. The Holy Spirit superintended and through inspiration, he guided the process of the Psalms so that all the Psalms go together in a very intricate fashion. Fascinating. I mean, some of the stuff I'm like, okay, come on. And then he like shows you data and he shows you exegetical evidence when you're like, wow, he's right. You know, Uh, anyway, I can't. I can't even go there right now. It's too, it's too much. This is a very important book. It's a very important book by Mark Jones, another book by Mark Jones, because it's on a very important subject. It's called Antinomianism by Mark Jones. What is antinomianism? No law? Anti-law, right? So what does antinomian, uh, what does antinomianism teach? Do they say, hey, there's no such thing as a law? No need for the law. Right. It's like the law has no place in the believer's life anymore, right? Right. So, and then what that leads to is license, right? So, antinomianism it has historically always followed um, 
uh, you know, the church around, and there's always been expressions of it. Probably the worst expression in church history of antinomianism would probably definitely be the Socinians after the Reformation. The Socinianism, Socinianism rose up. It was like a, it was like an uncle nephew team, uh, Italian guys that, that basically ended up just getting into all sorts of heresy leading to universalism and all this stuff. Uh, but antinomianism is a very, very tricky doctrine because um, it deals with the relationship between the law and the gospel. And so to have, you know, he says something in this book that is so profound. He says, we cannot have a Christianity that is all imperative and no indicative. We cannot have a Christianity that's all indicative and no imperative. And this is where people typically err. What's the opposite of antinomianism? Legalism. The idea that we are still under the law. You see that? And so that you have to earn, in a sense, your righteousness. So he strikes a very good balance. This is, and I'll, I'll give this caveat, okay, that I expect that you might find places in here where maybe you don't fully agree, because this is a very tricky doctrine. This is, a, a, you know, the relationship of law and gospel is a very nuanced thing. And so, um, but uh, thankful that God has given us teachers like Mark Jones to kind of guide us along the path of getting a balance between law and gospel. So I will put my show and tell you guys enjoying this. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I love books. My love for books is not uh, hidden from sight. Everybody knows I love books, but we have to come back to this. So let me say a quick prayer and we'll begin. Okay, let's pray together so that we can start um, looking at Ephesians here. Father, Lord, we understand that the faith is deep and profound. And, oh, Lord, we understand what Paul says when he says that we all look through a glass dimly. Our our minds are finite. Lord, our flesh is weak. And we just struggle at times to understand all of the depth of the riches of the knowledge of God, the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How profound is your revelation? And, uh, Father, as the psalmist declares, we've seen the limit of all perfection, but your law, your word is exceedingly broad. There's no end to the perfection of your word and the beauty of it. And so help us to be good students like Bereans, to be good students of Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so under this section, what I want to do is I want to tackle two different things. I want to talk today about what it means to have a definitive break with sin. Okay? Um, a definitive break with sin because I think that's what uh, Paul is talking about here. Look at verses 20, uh, 17 to 19. That's where we're going. And as you can tell, just as we're going through practical theology, remember, we're using Ephesians as our textbook. <laughs> so, uh, and as we look at the outline of Ephesians, is it, is it, if it gets hot in here for someone, just, just blame, uh, Chris Gonzalez. He's the AC guy. He works at the AC world, so, right, don't you? Okay, so people are like, it's finally getting cozy in here. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm gonna miss it, <laughs> right? It's just, it's hot, it's hot. I have no, uh, there's no place in my theology for being hot. <laughs> 17 to 19, this is what Paul says. He says, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer at, just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God 
because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And so that's what I'm saying, that these verses, verses 17 to 19, are speaking specifically of uh, this break with sin, or what we call a definitive break with sin. And in our other section, we're going to be looking at the old man uh, versus the new man, right? And that's going to be what? Verses what? 20 to 24. Matter of fact, let's read that real quick just for context sake. Beginning in verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard of of him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. I mean, this is a huge pericope. Pericope just means paragraph, right? This is a huge section of scripture dealing with the Christian life. But when we think about practical theology, our Christian life begins with a break with sin. Uh, and I think there's a lot of confusion on this, right? That Someone can, especially if you think of like the lordship controversy, right, uh, especially living here in Dallas area, right, this was kind of the epicenter for the whole lordship controversy that really erupted out of Dallas seminary uh, where a theology was being taught that a person could have Jesus as their savior through faith, but not necessarily obey him as lord, um, that that could come later in your life. So, you know, my son Johnny, you know, he's saved. He's a good old boy, you know, but he just, you know, he's just not doing good right now. You know, he can't help himself. He's just hooked on cocaine, you know, but he's a good boy. You know, he made a profession and he definitely knows Jesus. But right now, you know, he's just, you know, living the high life, <laughs> you know. So that's kind of where, pardon the pun, you know, but that's kind of like what we're talking about. And so what happened is, is in the 80s, John MacArthur wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus, where he essentially decimated the entire controversy of the lordship controversy. Because you got to see, you got to understand, they take you to passages of scripture that say, you know, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And what they're saying is, look, all that's necessary is faith. That's it. So as long as a person expresses some, exercises some form of faith in Christ, then the big part is done. He is their savior. But the Lord part, that will come later as they mature in the faith. Then they will learn to obey him. So, you know, MacArthur pointed out, no, you know, statements like Jesus said in John, uh, John, what is it, John uh, 14, 15, right? If you love me, you will obey me, right? And to love Christ is to obey his commandments. So you cannot profess to love Jesus as your savior when you are living an outright denial of him through your works. You see what I'm saying? So this is a very important subject and 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 the remnants of this are still going on. I mean, I just recently gave uh, counsel to a friend who is, uh, you know, came out of a non-lordship church. And was frustrated because they've got unregenerate people on the worship team. 
And the, the whole logic, again, goes that, no, well, they've made a profession. We're just, we're just thinking that if we give them opportunity, eventually they're going to come along and they're going to mature and they're going to grow and eventually they're going to be sanctified. Whew, you know, it's a scary way to run the church. Yes, sir. For me or against me, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely when Jesus said, you know, you're either for me or against me, he definitely was already laying down the foundation for um, the doctrine of the definitive break with sin, right? Uh, let me Let me challenge you guys to do this, okay, in your theology. This is something that I've been almost rebuked by it lately by the Lord and in, in this concept of um, where do all these New Testament authors get all this incredible theology? Where do they get it from, right? Is it just, you know, inspiration, boom, in the brain, out comes Romans, right? I would venture to say that we don't give Jesus enough credit for the didactic portions of the New Testament, and maybe one key example of that is the book of James. You read the book of James and read any good commentary on the book of James. And what the scholars will tell you is how often James relies on some saying of Jesus for what he's teaching. Right. And you even see kind of evidence of this in Corinthians when Paul says, you know, like in uh, I think it's in First um, Corinthians chapter seven where he's talking of giving guidance to like married couples or singles, right? And he says, this I say, not the Lord, right? But he says that he gives this advice to you, right? And says, not the Lord. So he just shows you that Paul was thinking constantly of the teaching of Jesus in reference to his own teaching to the churches. So all I'm saying is that we, we, we sort of underestimate the teachings of Jesus and the and the theological power that they have simply because they're not didactic, right? They're parabolic. Um, they're, they're spoken in personal conversation. But you think about the personal conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus on regeneration and understand that that, what he taught there in John chapter three, right, sort of became the groundwork for the technical language in the New Testament for how regeneration st- uh, works. Right, so just little things like that, uh, we need to give Jesus much more credit for uh, in that. But let's go back to this because I do want to examine this. So when we're talking about the a definitive break with sin, what are we saying? We're saying that there has to be at some point in your life as a Christian, there has to be some sort of break with sin in an official, in a technical sense, meaning that there there is some sort of clean break with your old ways. Right? Maybe another text on this. Turn to Romans chapter 6, a passage that I want all of you guys to know. I quote it all the time, but I think it's another classic text on definitive sanctification or definitive break with sin. And that's really what this is talking about. Right? Romans chapter 6, verse 17. Somebody want to read that for us? You became obedient. You see that? There was, there was some sort of, 
observable, there was some sort of official break with their disobedience. Now, this has to be carefully understood, right? Um, Paul here, of course, is not talking about perfectionistic tendencies in any way. He understands, and that's what Romans, in my opinion, Romans chapter 7, is going to come in to sort of give that balance of that as long as we are in these unredeemed human bodies, at least fully unredeemed, right, where we still have, in a sense, the, the war, the struggle, the battle with the old man, as long as we do, Galatians chapter 5, verses 17 to 19, where Paul says, you know, that the, the, the flesh and the spirit, these two are an opposite to one another so that you cannot do the things that you wish. There is a principle within the believer, so long as he still lives in this fallen world and is still subject to the presence of sin, there's still something in the believer that battles and that struggles and that will always have to war uh, with sin, and that's why Jesus taught, you know, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, you know, that type of thing. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put to death what remains earthly in you, right? So th- there has to be, and that's a, pr- a present active uh, verb as far as I, I know, and, and so what Paul is calling for is a continual putting to death, a continual or a habitual fighting against and putting off, right? Um, uh, maybe a, a classic um, passage uh, on definitive sanctification would also be Colossians chapter 3 verses, oh, I don't know, verses 1 through 10. Because, because in verse 10, that is where Paul finishes off, um, kind of the same thing that we saw right here in, in Ephesians, is he finishes off with the image of God. Notice that? Somebody want to read Colossians 1.10? Uh, 310, I'm sorry. Yeah, 310. Go ahead, Jonathan. Colossians 3, verse 10. And, and has put on, and has put on the new self, yep. being renewed yep. to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created. That's right. So again, the Imago Dei language comes back to the forefront. I've taught you guys this before, right? That in the, in the, in the course of biblical theology, what happens to the Imago Dei? Well, you find it in Genesis chapter 2, right? Obviously, God, or Genesis 1, 26 to 7, 27, where you have God creating man in his image, right? And then you have a couple statements in Genesis about he was created in his image. You know, he was in the image of his father, you know, those types of things. And then you kind of lose the image of God language. It kind of just drops out from the Bible until it resurrects again in the New Testament and, 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 and the implications of what happens to a person who is in Christ. And in Christ, what happens is that you are returning back to Genesis chapter 1. But now what's happening is you're going back to a new creation where now the image of God is being renewed back into the image. Isn't that marvelous? And so there we go. Uh, that's biblical theology right there. Genesis chapter 1 image of God is preparing us for what happens to us ultimately in Christ, right? And what the image of God was ultimately to be like, right? To look like Jesus. That's incredible. So how would you teach Genesis 1, 26 and 27? Probably Christocentrically. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I was recently challenged by evangelizing about uh, unbelievers being, no longer being in the image of God. Mm-mm. Yeah, I was saying, didn't James mention that? Was it James chapter 3? Yeah. 
something like that, right? James 3 talks about man being in the image of God. There's no question that man is still in God's image. He's still an image bearer. You know, that's why he is, um, that's why he is accountable to God, right? That's why he is God's covenant creature. He's still God's covenant creature because he's in his image. Think about that. I mean, isn't any wonder why God is respon- is still sort of a- holding human beings accountable? Why does he just obliterate them and send them out in the outer space and have nothing to do with them anymore? He cannot because he is covenantally bound to deal with them, either in Adam or in Christ, you see? And so everyone is created in God's image. And so, yeah, definitely I would say... Um, the Imago Dei still applies. I think James is kind of the seminal text. It's three, nine, the I think so. I think so. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because it's general, right? It's not. It's not necessarily speaking about the un. The, um, it's not excluding unbelievers. You know, I don't think that's what it's meant to do. So, I'm sure there's other texts. There's probably Psalms and maybe some Proverbs and things like that. But I can't remember at this point. So what we're what we're looking at here with this passage in particular is two things, okay? Two things that Paul is going to remind us. And isn't it amazing? As we are talking about having a break with sin, Paul reminds us of the nature of sin, and he focuses on two things. Number one, um, uh, let's call it the. Let's call it the epistemic effects of sin. Number two, let's call it the ethical, okay, effects of sin. What do you, what do I mean by epistemic, guys? Yeah, epistemic comes from epistemology, right? Epistemology has to do with reason, the mind, right? Uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes theologians refer to it as the noetic effects of sin. Why? Because it comes from the Greek word naos, or naos, okay? And usually there's like a accent right there. <laughs> so that's why they call it the noetic effects of sin. What effects does sin have on the human mind, right? Well, Paul is going to dive into that. And first of all, he says the way we're not supposed to walk is in the futility of their mind. Now think about that. The Greek word futility means What? Futility. <laughs> What's that? No. Aimless. There's another translation. Worthless. Wow. It's a devastating indictment on the human condition. It is saying that the mind of the flesh is of such a nature that it is so devoid of God that it is technically worthless. Think about that. You don't believe me? Turn to Romans chapter 3. <laughs> I know you believe me. <laughs> I got to wake you guys up somehow. Romans chapter 3. Just to see a similar use of a really, really sharp language, right? You know this passage, Romans 3.10. And it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There it is, a noetic effects of sin again. There is no one who seeks for God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become what? Useless. Wow. 
There is none who does good. There is not even one. This is an exhaustive treatment of the depravity of man. You want to talk about total depravity. I did an exposition of this text at a conference and and this text literally goes exhaustively through man's mind, man's body, man's deeds, man's will. Everything is captured in this passage. And he's quoting what psalm? He's quoting out of a psalm, right? Psalm 14, exactly. That begins with what verse? Verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Think about that. Uh, question. Yes, sir. Well, I was just going to ask uh, with Romans 1. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, 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 that's right. And I'm glad that you went to Romans chapter 1 because what I did is I said somewhere here in my notes, here we are reminded of the various nefarious characteristics of the life dominated by by the sin nature. There are many viceless in the New Testament that parallel this passage. There are many, and matter of fact, I looked every single one of them up, um, and there's... Uh, well over a dozen passages of Romans 1 is actually one of the vice lists of the Bible that show the effects of sin, whether noetic or ethical or anything else. And uh, But there are many vice lists in the Bible. It's really remarkable. And so the the obviously the duty of the Christian is to look at these vice lists and to say, this does not reflect my life, right? It should not. This should not reflect my life. What I find in these vice lists is not what should be a reflection of the, of the habitual pattern of my life. Right? That's what practical theology is all about. That's what a definitive break with sin is all about. So Johnny, going back to Johnny, if he wants to keep smoking cocaine, right, then he's going to fall right back under this viceless category. And guess what happens when you fall back under this vice list? your assurance begins to erode if you ever had any, right? So that's like a guarantee, automatic. You start looking like what you find in these vice lists, then you can guarantee that your your peace and your assurance and your salvation will corrode beneath your feet, right? If you ever had that. So, um, but what does this futility of mind tell us? The futility of mind... Uh, also suggests to us that man is not simply in a neutral place, epistemologically speaking. It's not that as many of our neighbors and friends and people that you witness to on the streets and that I've had people tell me, right, like, I'm not bothering anybody. I don't do any. I'm, you know, I look, I don't believe or I don't, I don't not believe. I'm just, you know, you ever heard that before? I just, I'm okay with it. You can have your religion. I don't care if you worship a stone. Just don't stone me with it, you know, that kind of thing. It, it, do whatever you want, you know, but the reality of what Paul is saying here is that, no, no, it's not just that your mind is futile and and sort of neutral, it's hostile, right? Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verses 7 through 9, right? In Romans chapter 8, verse 7, he says that very thing, the mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God, hostile, think about that, you guys. 
the mindset on the flesh, which when there what he says set on the flesh, he's talking about what we're looking at here in Ephesians, a life dominated by the sin nature, unredeemed, unregenerate. And the mind that is there is actively hostile to God. Going back to Romans chapter one. Why? What is what is part of the indictment? That they became this, they became that, they were this, they were that. They were haters of God, right? And if you went up to the average unregenerate person on the street and you say, are you a hater of God? Oh, not me, right? I would never say that I hate God. The problem is, is that by your deeds and with your tongue, what is going back to Romans chapter 3, the poison of asps is under their tongue. Wow. Right? Poisonous, toxic, blasphemous speech proceeds out of their mouth. Right? Because they can't help it. I will never forget. After I got saved, I was 19 years old. I went to my, <laughs> my friend Johnny. That's not a story. <laughs> His name was Johnny. <laughs> His name was Johnny. I went to Johnny's house. And with tears, I was pleading with him to repent. And I said, Johnny, watch. You can't stop cussing for the next five minutes. Right? And the first thing out of his mouth was a bleeping denial of that possibility. I said, see? You can't help it. Right? Because you need a new heart. You need a new nature. Right? You have to have a fundamental change in your whole constitution. It's not just about going to church with me. You have to repent. You have to change. Um, and that's why the futility of the mind, it's all rooted there, right? It starts in the mind. It works itself out into the deeds of the body. Just look at the natural progression here. It says, they were futile in their mind, being darkened in their understanding. Now, what does that text remind you? Being darkened in their understanding. Now, to my knowledge, Einstein was not a Christian. Uh, from what I heard is that he was something of a, if anything, of a deist. There's a God out there somewhere, right? Um, isn't he smart, though? <laughs> Wasn't he smart? Brilliant, Right? Seems like his understanding worked pretty well. Better than mine. <laughs> right? So what is this text saying and what is it not saying? Mm. But regarding the understanding of the mind. Right, right. That's right. And that's what I was looking for. And that text that you quoted was exactly the one I was thinking about. First Corinthians chapter two, verse 14, right? It says that, uh, they cannot understand, natural man, right? He cannot understand the things of the spirit because they are, they're, they're spiritually discerned. But what else does it say about that? Right? Going back to the futility and the darkness part of it, right? What does it say? They are moros to him. Their foolishness, right? Did you guys see the, the, the video with Bill Nye and, and, uh, Ken Ham? We did a thing on Red Grace where we were kind of chalk talking it. Uh, uh, Ken Ham walked Bill Nye through the whole arc. 
and he kind of was giving him a tour, and they were just kind of chatting back and forth. You know what I mean? It was just incredible how you know some of the most precious things of the gospel that Ken Ham was talking about that Bill Nye just regarded as abject foolishness. It's just utter foolishness, just folly in his eyes. You know what I mean? And that's why it says earlier in First Corinthians chapter one. Verse 18, it says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, right? I mean, there it is there, folks. There's the epistemic battle right there, is that as it pertains to the very wisdom of God, see, we have no higher appeal, right? We are not appealing to people to to appeal to them about the wisdom of God primarily displayed in the creation. Look at the intricate fine tuning of the universe. Look at the look at the the, the ratio of, of you know whatever. Look at the degree between you know the gravity pool and this and that and blah 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 the separation of the sun and the earth. We're just so fine tuned. I mean God did it. It's beyond that. The wisdom of God, according to Paul, is captured at the cross. Really, really Grab a hold of that, you guys. That if you really want to see God's wisdom, don't pull out a book on physics. Point people to the curse of the cross. Point people to what happened at the cross of Christ. What happened at the cross of Christ, Mike? That's right. I picked on you because I knew you'd have something good. And plus, because you distracted me by coming in here. So I had to get you back somehow. We love you, brother. You doing all right? Okay, good. All right. We'll talk later. Of course, Mike Stockwell just walks in here 15 minutes before we got to leave. Okay, let's keep going. Darkened understanding. Anything else you guys have to say about that? So, so it's exactly what we just said. It's not that unbelievers cannot be brilliant. It's not that they can't be scientists. They can't. Listen, if I have a brain tumor and the best doctor in the world is a Muslim, by all means, under common grace, Operate on my brain. <laughs> I don't care if you're not regenerate, if you're regenerate or not. You know what I'm saying? God, and I think sometimes, and I've always said this, somebody's got to write a book on it, and don't tell me to do it because I have enough ideas. <laughs> but somebody has to write a book on common grace. Common grace has been undermined. The power of common grace, right, in the world, I think it's unappreciated. Uh, question, comment, yes, sir. Sure, of course, because he doesn't have the reasoning powers. He doesn't have the epistemological powers, right, to think rightly about God, right? Because really, in reality, all all knowledge goes together. You see, um, if you want to talk about, you know, presuppositionalism, it was Van Til who said that there's no such thing as a brute fact. There's no fact floating out there in the universe that is not attached to another fact, that is not attached to another fact, that is not attached ad infinitum until you get to the source of all true knowledge, which is God. So you can't predicate because you don't have a proper understanding of God. Like Calvin says, if you want right knowledge, you have to know God and know self. In other words, you can't even know self unless you know God. 
You see what I'm saying? But if you know God, then you can know self. And, I mean, I'll answer it right here from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Right? Look at what, look at the, um, look at what he says about you as a Christian who has a proper epistemology. He's not talking about IQ. He's talking about your worldview that is spiritual. Look at what he says. A natural man cannot accept these things, the Spirit of God, because they're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. He's incapable. This is why the reformers, when they taught on total depravity, it was not just simply total depravity as in man is sinful, but really it was connected to the concept of total inability. He is not able, right? He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual, that's us, he says, he appraises all things. You ever think about that? That you who are spiritual, you have the capacity to appraise all things? Wow. That doesn't mean you un- you know everything, but it does mean you have you have the proper foundation, the proper epistemic foundation, proper mental capacity. You have the proper worldview so that you can accurately assess anything. Right? You can discern through the wisdom that God gives you in the gospel. And by virtue of the Spirit of God, you can have a proper view of everything, right? That's why the Reformers taught that what we are to have in Christianity is a world and life view that is comprehensive and understands how we ought to live in the present evil age, how we are to look at every sphere of life, everything. Bill Nye is really smart, way smarter than me. And I'll listen to him, and I'll listen to him talk about molecules and atoms and physics and quantum physics and this and that, and I don't know when the world he's talking about. But the minute he says, that's, that's why there's no God. No. Sorry. I, my spiritual appraisal of your worldview is that your naturalistic presuppositions have led you to a place where you denied the very foundation of knowledge itself. Therefore, your worldview is futile. Right? That's how I can assess somebody's worldview that's way, way smarter than I am, right? Um, Bart Ehrman. Did you guys hear my story about Bart Ehrman? So Bart Ehrman's really smart. He's a textual critic. Uh, he sat under Bruce Metzger. I read his book on textual criticism for Greek 4. And um, there's no denying the man is a total scholar when it comes to the manuscript evidence of the Bible. Now he, is a, he calls himself a happy agnostic, right? Well, I can't even begin to enter into conversation with Bar Ehrman about manuscript evidence, okay? But what I did ask Mr. Ehrman once, that I had the interesting pleasure of meeting him, I asked him, now that you're an agnostic, how do you account for morals, meaning, and beauty without God? He goes, everybody knows that. I said, so it's based on what? Intuition? Is it just axiomatic? Everybody knows the truth automatically? Come on. And so his security guard came and pushed me out of the way. (laughs) Your pastor get in trouble. He never answered. Isn't that what Romans says? They're without excuse, without an answer. (laughs) They're without an apologetic, right? They are without an apologia. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter one. Now I'm sure he would have given a stab at something, but this is the reality is that the biblical worldview, I mean, we've heard it all. It doesn't matter what angle you take, right? 
What does 1 Corinthians chapter 1 say? It says that through the wisdom of man, man never came to know God. And Paul is reflecting in Corinth and, and, and what every technical commentary that you will read there, what, what, what they're saying is that Paul is speaking in the context of Corinth and what he is rejecting, what he is refuting is this sort of man-made philosophy and especially rhetorical techniques to try to gain a, an audience, a following. That's why he says we do not use what? Words of human wisdom or, right? What, what does he say? We don't use eloquent speech or something. We our preaching was not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the power of God. So persuasive words of speech. He says, I didn't come to you with superiority of speech or wisdom. What? So you came with bad speech and foolishness? Obviously, that's not what Paul's talking about. What he's talking about is a social, uh, a social, uh, context in Corinth where orators would go out into the public square, bring their philosophy, and through eloquent rhetorical techniques would gain a following, would garnish a following from people, right? And what Paul is saying is that that's not what we do. We preach Christ, right? We preach Christ crucified. That's it. That's the power of God. Let the world be damned. They might look at it and say, that is the foolishness of God. And what Paul is saying, well, to us, it is the power of God unto salvation. You may regard it as foolish, but to us, it is God's power. You see? And so that's why, as as a Christian, we cannot ever epistemologically compromise with the world. Ever, 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 ever. We can never stand on the same ground that they're standing on because their ground that they're standing on is fundamentally hostile to God. It's really remarkable. I mean, I hate to turn this into a presuppositional study, but... Well, I mean, it, it just reminds me of an interaction that uh, happened. You and, you and I and a bunch of other brothers were out, and the guy actually went to you and said, this is absolutely foolish. Happens to me all the time, Robert. I don't know which one you're talking about. <laughs> it was at the shops. We actually recorded it. It's on, oh, yeah, it's on yeah. YouTube. Yeah. But, but he goes... The gentleman was drunk or something like that? I don't, I don't know. Okay. But, right, but yeah. ultimately... Doing so, he chose the foolishness of preaching. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, and it's just amazing how how often we are proven right in our belief, uh, Amen. just based on the reactions that we have from the world. This is true. And l- let's just go quickly back to Ephesians chapter four and finish there. Okay, we understand this. The, the mind is futile, the understanding is darkened, and because of that, they are excluded of the life of God. Look at that, guys. Excluded from the life of God. What does that matter? Everything. Right? That, why does that matter? Because that's everything. Uh, if you're excluded, excluded from the life of God, there are two aspects of that that I want to point out. One is that the life of God speaks qualitatively of eternal life. Right? But it also speaks covenantally of belonging to God. Um, matter of fact, when it says here, excluded, you see that? Apolumi or something like that. Turn to, turn to the indicative part of the book, chapter 2. Right? Ephesians chapter 2. To see the same word used previously in a covenantal context. Right? Verse 12. 
Remember that at, time, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. You see that? So you, you that language of exclusion, what that means is that you are not in a right covenantal standing with God. You have no part of the life of the covenant community of God. Right? It's, it's a dreadful place uh, to be. And look where it leads. Oh, look at the explanation. Excluding the life of God. Double explanation because that's such a powerful statement. Excluded from the life of God. That's such a potent statement. It requires two uh, additional explanations. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, be uh, be careful here because the word ignorance here and when the Bible uses ignorance in these in these contexts, ignorance is never a, a, a um, it's never an excuse. It's never a precedence for innocence. To be ignorant in the Bible is not a good thing, right? People use it today. It was like ignorance is bliss. Not here. Ignorance is guilt, right? And then it says it just it's just showing the depravity of the condition. Right. Because another explanatory clause, because of the hardness of their heart, so that if there's any doubt concerning the ignorance and where it stems from, it doesn't stem from a lack of information. It stems from a moral issue, namely the heart, the hardness of the heart. You see that? Wow. Is Paul brilliant or what? So brilliant. He just. Brilliant. We gotta close. <laughs> I'm running out of time. But I didn't even get to the second part, which is the ethical dimension. Maybe I can just read it for us. Um, because it works this way, epistemology first and then ethics, what we can say is that this lives up to the old adage, garbage in, garbage out. Right? Verse 19. They having become callous. That's a perfect tense participle. That means it's a settled state, a settled condition, and having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. What is the result of failing to know God in your mind? Is that your only recourse is to live by your impulses. And when you live merely by your impulses, like much of our culture does, just turn on the television, you'll see is that where it leads to is an insatiable desire for a illusion of gratification that never satisfies anybody, right? But, like the Bible says, um, the wages of sin, death. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but then it gives way to death, right? Anybody have a last comment? I'll give you the last word, brother. That's right. That's right. You think you're pursuing what's good because it feels good, right? Because it it it, 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 it appeases the, the lusts. And the lusts is the Greek word epithumia. Epithumia means just something of a strong urge, right? So if people are just giving in to their lusts, right, that's why Scripture calls them the lusts of deceit. Isn't that remarkable that those impulses are deceiving you? That's what Paul is saying. It's really amazing because it all ties right back into epistemology, right? That the, the principle of lust is deceiving the mind. 
Isn't that incredible? It turns into turns you into a dupe, right? To end on a really high, lofty. <laughs> no. All right, let's go to worship, you guys.